everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including an alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello, and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. So excited to be here with you all. It's a great show. It's a great day. It's going to be a great show. We got great guests. And I want to thank everyone for supporting the show. Again, since being censored and fired by the Hill, I've been really blessed with a lot of support from people. So thank you so much to all of you who have joined the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Thank you all of you who have subscribed. Exciting news. We are above 80K subscribers. That's very exciting. We also got over 100,000 views on the censored video that I made with Breakthrough News, the one that The Hill refused to air. So again, thanks so much to Breakthrough News and thanks to all the new subscribers and all the new viewers and all the new Patreons. Really appreciate it. I'm very excited about today's show. Before I announce today's show, though, I just want to give you guys a sneak preview about who our Patreon guest is going to be. So this is yet another reason for you to become Patreons, not just to support the show, which of course is the main reason to join the Patreon, but also because you get bonus episodes, you get extended interviews, and you get just totally separate new interviews. So this week's Patreon-only interview is going to be with Kit Clarenberg, whose latest piece is at the Gray Zone, and it's called Exposed. Before Ukraine blew up Kerch Bridge, British spies plotted it. So as you can imagine, that's going to be a very important and exciting discussion, not a discussion you can find most places. So make sure you join patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show so that you will be there for it. Also, make sure you like the stream right now. That's another way you can help beat the algorithm and just helps everyone, helps the show, helps get the word out. I will be doing a call-in right after this with my guests. So make sure you join us on call-in and the call-in link is in the YouTube description Colin's a free application. You just download onto your phone if it's not already there. And we take your questions, which is really exciting. So I'm about to bring on the very esteemed guests. They are none other than Josh Olson, who is an Oscar-nominated screenwriter, Dave Anthony, who is a Writers Guild-nominated screenwriter and a comedian, and Kate Willett, who is a comedian and author, the host of Reply Guys podcast, and also the author of Dirtbag Anthropology. Also, Dave and Josh co-hosted the West Wing Thing podcast, and they also have their own podcast that they can talk about. Dave co-hosts The Dollop, which is a great history podcast, and Josh co-hosts another show about movies. So without any further ado, let's bring on Josh Olson, Dave Anthony, and Kate Willett. Hello. 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 Hi. Hi. How are you guys? We're we're good. How's Dave? Dave is... (laughs) Dave had some spectrum issues, but we're powering through. So very excited to have you guys on. We're going to talk about your new show. We're going to talk about some L.A. politics towards the end of the show. But tell us, Josh and Dave, what made you want to do this new podcast? Did you lose a bet or something? <laughs> I don't want to do his work. <laughs> yeah, no, so we, we, we've done a show called The West Wing Thing for the last couple of years in which uh, now we've completed. We've watched and... Um, both both uh, Katie and Kate have been on our show. We watched every single solitary episode of The West Wing, except one, 
to dissect the show's terrible, terrible, terrible politics and discuss the ways that uh, those terrible politics both impacted and were impacted by current Democratic Party politics and how they probably led us to Trump and many other awful things. The one episode we didn't do had no political content at all, so we talked about a good episode of Deep Space Nine instead. Oh, okay. Um, but we're done. And our friend David Sirota, who'd been on a couple of times, floated this subject to us. We had done a miniseries in the middle of the West Wing thing where we took Hillary Clinton's masterclass in resilience, which was quite an experience. Um, if you need to learn about how to be resilient, you could do better than taking Hillary Clinton's masterclass. I think you had two excellent guests on that one, didn't you? We did, indeed. Brianna Joy Gray and... That is correct. And and uh, I believe uh, Katie Halper was on the show. Yeah. And uh, yes, we broke those down. And at one point, Sirota suggested, you know, you should do more of those. And why don't you come over to The Lever? We're looking to sort of branch out and do more podcasts. And he pitched us. He's a great idea guy. And he just pitched us fully for him, the audit. And it would be like... Uh, how about you guys and a co-host and you do these kind of mini arcs where you do like four, five, six episode breakdowns of things like masterclasses, documentary series, audio books even. We're going to be taking on sort of any place where you find bad politics being presented by awful people. There we will be sitting in the back of the class throwing spitballs, essentially. And we kicked it off uh, with our friend Kate Willett. She's been, we, we call her co-host our study buddy on these. She was our first. We're almost done. We're doing George W. Bush has done a master class in leadership. I've learned so much. Yes. We are all now qualified to be leaders of men. So, Kate, what made you agree to do this? Um, because I like Josh and Dave and I hate George W. Bush, I would say, were the two nice. main factors in my decision. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Nice. Yeah. And Dave, what about you? I'm going to unmute you. I muted you. Sorry, I had this delivery man. There's a delivery man on the street and he's blasting music. So it's really great. Oh, okay. This is the kind of fly by the seat of your pants type of action you'll get at the audit. Yeah. You know, we realized after doing the Hillary one that all these people are using Masterclass to redo their legacies. It's just pure propaganda. So I don't know. It just seemed like, especially watching everyone go into the like, oh, George Bush is good now because Trump is bad. Like it's no, it just really needs it, that. That can't happen. And so, you know, you just can't let these guys just propaganda themselves out of, you know, being war criminals. Basically. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Even though they're not Trump or even though they dislike Trump. So walk us through, are you doing, are you listening to one episode at a time or are you watching the whole thing and then discussing it? What's your process? Uh, the process made, we, we watched the whole thing first and then kind of broke it down in each of these things. You know, we'll do more masterclasses and then other stuff as well. And they'll all kind of be, you know, figured out as we go. But with the Bush one, I think there are 18 different segments, some 10 minutes long, some 25 minutes long. And we would break down a two to three pretty much. We did one episode where we did four because they were very short. You kind of break them down and kind of walk through those. So there's no kind of rhyme or reason. It's just you sort of go, I think we can fill an episode by talking about three or four of these and then do that. Sometimes they're thematic. We're just about to record our final episode. We're only covering two, his two final classes, one of which is his kind of summing up his view of the world. And the other is um, 18 minutes talking about painting. Oh, nice. <laughs> There's not going to be a lot to say about that. Right. So what was the first thing that stuck out for you guys when you were listening to the Bush Masterclass? Like what authentic leadership lessons have you learned? I mean, for me, I'd say none. But um, no, what, what jumped out, I think, for all of us, you guys tell me if I'm wrong, is you sit there and if you remove yourself from the context of the thing, and, and again, the context really is he's sort of jumping on the, the, the moment where 
so many, I mean, because this is clearly for liberals. So many liberals are just have been driven mad by Trump and have forgotten that this is, you know, easily one of our worst presidents, body count far higher than Trump's, more physical damage to the country alone than Trump, let alone the world. And if you just sort of sit back and let it wash over you, he's fucking likable. He's just, you're just like, hey, this guy's, he's, he's all right. He's folksy. He's funny. And you start to realize how important that is to some degree in, in politics, especially at this degree. It's like, we have to stop running these sort of like cold-blooded bureaucrats against these people who actually, warts and all, come across as human beings. Mm, yeah. It's dangerous. You know, I mean, I was out in the street for a lot of the Bush administration protesting, and, and I can, you can forget for a minute or two that, oh, this is that guy. This is that guy we all wanted to and to this day still want to see in The Hague. For me, I've been like my experience watching this is like just really feeling like there's absolutely nothing that could happen that would make people stop believing in meritocracy. Because, I mean, this guy is just like, it's so obvious that he was just some drunk fail son. And then his parents basically like, arranged for him to get into politics. And, you know, I think between him and Trump, there's got to be absolutely nothing that will make liberals stop believing that how hard you work actually doesn't matter. And he, you know, he talks about that again and again. He talks about, like, there's a section of the class where he talks about, like, yeah, you know, with politics, like, you got to start by being the person who hangs the posters, you know, like, and just show up early, stay late, do your best. And it's like, no, that's not how it works, George Bush. Yeah, you know? certainly not yeah. how it worked for him, right? No, no. It, I mean, it's like, I don't think that there's anything that would shatter this mythology at this point. Yeah. Well, we actually have a clip from this masterclass. Shall we do a preview of it? Oh, yeah, this is a fun one. He talks a lot about taking, how you need to, um, a leader, a leader needs to uh, take responsibility. Yeah, so let's hear what Bush has to say. Here's an example of him taking responsibility. Listen carefully. This is love. Oh, should we set? I'll set this up a little bit. It's him. Oh yeah, please set this up. It's it's the famous heck of a job brownie comment after Katrina, and it's him talking about how that happened. He acknowledges that that was a mistake, but listen, listen to how he takes responsibility for it. I that. just want to make sure people know Katrina was a hurricane, a very bad hurricane, a Category Five. Honestly, I don't know if everyone remembers that. How old you are? Hopefully, you've heard of it. And brownie was the head of FEMA. And his experience up until that point included mostly, I think, being the head of an Arabian Horse Association. So that's what we're about to see. George Bush, reflect on this. I took blame. I think people will tell you that I shared credit. And when things failed, I took blame. You know, I think of Katrina. I took a trip down to the Katrina area as quickly as I could, and I landed in Mississippi, and the Alabama governor was there along with the Mississippi governor. And he said, Brownie here has done a good job. He was the head of FEMA. And I turned to Brownie and said, heck of a job, Brownie. Brownie, you're doing a heck of a job. The FEMA director's working 24 hours. By the time we got to New Orleans, uh, my attempts to raise the spirits of somebody who's working hard uh, became a political liability. People use that as a phrase to show I was out of touch, when in fact, I thought I was exhibiting a good leadership trait, which is to share credit and thank people for a job well done. And so my attempt to share credit backfired a little bit on me, but it's uh, that, that's my nature to, to, to have done that. I think it's a nature that managers must have. Wow. So let's talk about the credit, which he should have been taking or not taking. Like, what had Brownie achieved at that point? Where were we in this hurricane? Before we get to that, the, the, the great thing about that is you notice the way he blames the governor 
for yeah. misinforming yeah. him. Like it's, <laughs> but he's yeah. really good at not throwing people under the bus. Yes. At this point, it's been catastrophic. Like we're we're into a complete and total disaster. I mean, well, I think we're five days in. So as you recall, we're, we're seeing bodies floating the entire thing at the Superdome where we're just watching people being covered in tarps because they died of, you know, no water and whatever else. And so it's a catastrophe that I think we talked about this, but it's like nothing you'd ever seen as an American. You're You're just bewildered and angry. And then he comes in and does this. And yeah, he acts throughout the masterclass. He acts like, you know, not that much time has passed or not that many bad things have happened yet. But if you look at the timeline, it's bad at this point. And there were all these warnings that they had ignored. Yeah. Oh, yes. The hurricane hit exactly where it was supposed to hit. Like two days of models said it's going to hit right there as a very large storm. As a matter of fact, they thought it was going to be a bigger, they thought it was going to be a, f- a five when it hit, but it was only a three. So they had ample warning. It had already gone through Florida and done tons of damage to Florida. So yeah, they just acted like it wasn't it. They ignored it. They just didn't think much of it. Right. Yeah. I think it's pretty disgusting watching the way that he's been rehabilitated. I mean, all you have to do is be part of the quote unquote resistance and dislike Trump. But as you guys pointed out, he does have a higher body count than Trump does. Yeah. yeah. And I'm, yeah. And if you talk to Iraqis, I'm sure they have strong feelings about it. Well, there's also, I think one of the things that makes me crazy is people are, you know, this better than us. You're much more high profile that anytime you try to clarify anything about Donald Trump or anytime you sort of go, well, that didn't happen. You're perceived as, so I, I will say, and I think I speak for all of us that uh, I would love to live in a world where Donald Trump lives out the rest of his life behind bars. That would be yeah. wonderful. Sure. Uh, in fact, I ran up the election with a friend. We wrote a screenplay about Donald Trump's uh, final year of military academy that was designed to give him an aneurysm. Sadly, nothing happened with that. But it's like, you know, you hear this stuff and and it's like, no, man. And I get January 6th, terrible thing. Trump was behind an attempt to overthrow the government. That's bad. But if you think that's bad, why don't you think that a guy successfully stealing two elections is conceivable worse, you know? Is it because it got loud and rowdy and some windows got broken? And, you know, it's like, I get it. A couple people died. That's very bad. But Bush stole elections. He successfully stole elections. Trump failed. I mean, this isn't a new point, but I do think it shows, like, you know, how much of being a liberal is just about norms, you know? Yeah. Um, Yeah. I I, I think that... (laughs) I don't know. I mean, you know, they've really rehabilitated Bush. They've rehabilitated so many neocons who are affiliated with his administration. And it really is truly like all like these people respect the rules and the way it's done. And when they want to kill people, they go through the proper channels, you know? Right. They don't announce it. They don't brag about it. They're not uncouth. That was Trump's major mistake, right? Yeah. Yeah. Did you look into... Obviously, you're doing the master class, but what about looking into Bush's biography? Did you discover anything that you didn't already know about him? We actually have a, a research guy who I believe read Brian's Amazing. His name is Brian Ciano. He's in Philadelphia. I think he read three different biographies of Bush and, and was sort of like throwing us little tidbits, but nothing nothing too unusual. They're just stuff that you forgot more than anything. Like you you forget how like he thought God had sent him to be president, like right. stuff like that, where you're like, oh, right. He was yeah. out of his mind. No. Yeah. I mean, he was right. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, we, yeah. yeah of course. Proof that God hates us, I think. Is yeah, the, I mean, he yeah. won twice. I, I think that's, yeah. that's pretty much God's hand. Uh, that's God's right. hand, yeah. We were talking about this today, about like, you know, how George W. Bush and also a lot of conservatives, like, they think that if they did something, like, whatever they do, because they believe in God, that that thing is now endorsed by God, as opposed to like Trump, who just thinks he is God. But it's a very similar kind of narcissism that just doesn't sound as much like narcissism, because you're not saying like, I alone can do it. You're saying me right. and my imaginary buddy Jesus can do it together. There's one guy ahead of you one guy more powerful than you he just happens to be on your team and rooting for you mm-hmm. yeah it's relative humility compared to when you think you're god i guess yeah, yeah. not to come on your podcast and bring up jesus you know yeah that's, yeah. Uh, that's aggressive yeah actually I'm, I'm curious about how you all evolve politically because i know kate you grew up with jesus in your life josh and david what about you guys well, Josh, Josh's story is better. Why don't you? <laughs> well, my, I'm, no, I just, I grew up in it, you know? Um, I mean, I grew up in a neighborhood in Philadelphia, Powell Village, that 15, 20 years ago, somebody wrote a sociology textbook on, on it because it, it's, it's actually unique. It was kind of the uh, hotbed of sort of like communist activity in America in the 20s and the anti-war activities in the 60s. Um, I lived one block away from MOVE, which some people may remember uh, the first time during the first shootout. I was not there when the city dropped a firebomb on them and blew up an entire city block. And, you know, I've got family members who are very active in the movement to the extent of, you know, one who did time for um, activities in the 70s and is to this day in her 70s a, um, you know, vital progressive activist who works with, you know, much younger people who are inspired by her and, who you know, she inspires them and they inspire her. And so I've always been around it. And I think what kind of happened, there was a long period, especially out in L.A., where I just sort of felt that... Every now and then you sort of run into somebody out here who seems fairly similar. And look, people are decent everywhere, but it all just seemed kind of dead. You know, there was no real active left. And and I will never forget finding out that um, in that first time, I think everybody here has this experience, that first time you realize that Bernie Sanders, that guy we all all like, everybody liked him at that point. And by the way, most people still do. You know, we all thought, oh, it would be great if there were more politicians like him. When you found out uh, not only was he running but that, that guy without any television coverage or anything else was filling football stadiums. Mm-hmm. And, and that activated something in, in a lot of people. And it also woke something back up in a lot of us, too, where it was like, oh, oh, there are others. You know, this shit is happening. It is real. There are actually people out there who care. There are people who, who know his message and we're just waiting to find other people like them. And, and there are people who have not heard his message who are hearing it and being activated by it. And that was just that was just an amazing thing to me. It was it was so heartening. I completely, completely agree with you and felt the same way. And also, this is exactly how George Bush talks about Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, Jesus was new to him. That's yeah, he was hearing his message. Other people were have heard his message. <laughs> Other people like the guy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But but it was it was what was really startling to me was people who I had just sort of been around forever who I assumed were just kind of you know there's all these sort of people who are sort of like good liberals and you know political enough that they're like they hate George Bush and you know Ron Reagan's terrible and everything and and what's astonished me is I sort of assumed that as soon as Bernie started really happening those people would be like oh wow this is great and instead those people started going uh, hey why do you hate women it was yeah. like mm, excuse yeah. me. Right. It was it was startling. It was genuinely startling to see the hammer come down so hard uh, yeah. from the Democratic establishment. Um, so, 
I mean, that was my story. Dave, Dave was always pretty lefty too. You're, yeah. Uh, my dad was a assistant DA and then a, a defense attorney, and I was raised not to like cops. Don't trust cops. Stay the fuck away from cops. That was how I was raised. And then you know, I worked on like Democratic campaigns when I was like sixteen, like Barbara Boxer and stuff like that. But then I, you know, I started watching it. And I'm like, oh, this isn't. This doesn't seem right. And it, you, you watch the lies and the the nonsense happening. But then it was really, yeah, I read the People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn around then, and that kind of woke me up. And then, and then the first Gulf War, which I got arrested during the first Gulf War protesting, and I got to be on the other side of what that's like and how much they punish. And we got fined like a thousand dollars and like this, like just insane stuff. When they arrested us, it was in Santa Barbara. The local news flew in a, a transparent Iraqi flag over us on the news as we were getting arrested. Like you just watch it all and you're just, you're just like, this is, this is all insane. And it just kind of all fell apart at me at that point. And I just swung super left and I've kind of just been there ever since, you know, in the nineties was a very lonely time. You wouldn't say you're a socialist because people would lose their minds. I mean, people that were, you know, liberals, they would just, when has that ever worked? And you're just like, okay. Good on paper. People love saying that. (laughs) Yeah. So I've always kind of been there. I, I've always been, you know, anti, like I was very anti-Clinton. Well, I always remember we had a, a big party at Cobb's Comedy Club for his second election. And everyone is celebrating and having a good time, except for me and David Cross. And we're, we just looked, looked across the room at each other. And we're just like, they don't get it. <laughs> and so that's kind of where I've always been. I've just always been in this surrounded by people that are happy about shit that's really bad. <laughs> right. Does it feel weird in Hollywood? Like, do you feel like you have to be... Well, I guess you're out of the closet now through your podcast, but was it scary to? Sort of. There's not a lot. I mean, there's some people who do take it very, I mean, I think Dave and I have both lost friends and, and probably work for it, but there's also a lot of people who genuinely don't care in a good way. You know what I mean? Because it's like, hey, we're here to create something. One of the people responsible for my career early on is a big executive now who is a Trump supporter. And, wow. but you know, he's a lovely guy and I would trust him more than a lot of people. He also, he's a Trump supporter in California. He doesn't have a big podium. He doesn't have a podcast or a TV show. So it's like, you know, it doesn't matter. His vote doesn't matter. He's a great person. The crazy thing is his creative instincts as a producer are so humanistic. It's insane. Like you sit there sometimes and go, do you ever, does this producer in you ever talk to like that voter in you? Cause you guys would like fight to the death. It's very strange. And it's uh, David Simon. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, there, there, there's a lot of that in kind of all kinds of ways going on. There's people who are more, I mean, I don't want to, I, I don't know it all personally, but it's fascinating if you look at um, Paul Schrader's Facebook page has become a kind of item on Twitter. And, you know, his politics are kind of odd sometimes. And then you look at his movies, you know, you look at First Reformed, and it's like, did the guy who's writing those weird texts about cancel culture make this? This movie is radical. This is an angry, radical movie. And, you know, so it's, it's, um, it, it could have been a lot worse. Where it gets interesting is that um, people have a hard time separating film and politics or entertainment and politics. Because it's like, on the one hand, like, I'm completely like, yes, representation matters a lot. It is really important that we see a more representative view of our culture in entertainment. It is not quite the same thing when you talk politics. It's like, I am much more interested in a politician who's going to you know, ensure the last poor black woman dies in poverty than I am in making sure we elect the first black woman who's incredibly wealthy and powerful to president. And it's, and they equate the same. It's like in in a lot of people's minds, it's the exact same thing. 
Yeah, that's why I can never enjoy Lenny Riefenstahl's movies anymore once I found out about her politics. (laughs) (laughs) Art and politics, yeah. Hollywood is is filled with people who came from Ivy League schools and and came from privileged backgrounds because that's the easiest way to make it in the arts in the United States is you don't have to work. Your parents help you out and then, oh, you have a writing job. Like that's how that's how comedians have worked my whole life and that's how this is working. So the the writers rooms are filled with Yale and Dartmouth and all these people who don't have any understanding of socioeconomic problems in the United States. The the most oblivious places I've been as far as politics go are writers rooms. Like I cannot believe what I'm hearing. And then when you try to like, I was writing on a show and I said, why don't we do this? Because of, I know the way the gatekeeping works. I said, why don't we go to like community colleges or, you know, high schools, South central, wherever you want to go, talk to the teachers, go, who do you, what kid can write that you think has a future? And why don't we get them to turn in a script and see if they can write and then we get, then we literally find someone who comes from that, that economic background, that place that is a different voice, not just a different skin color, a different place. And I got called a white savior. Wow. Man. And I was like, okay, so, okay. All right, cool. <laughs> I thought it was a pretty Let's good idea. Keep it going. That kind of well. sucks for the kid who didn't get that job. Yeah, seriously. Thank God he didn't get white saved with a, with a, with a job. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. If you don't want to be racist, you can save me and get me a writing job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly. take, and take then he's going to be a male savior. Action. Yeah. I don't yeah. know how to do that, Kate. I just like, we're just watching you drown here. We'd love to throw you this, but it's, it's sorry. It would it's be infantilizing. It would be, it would be infantilizing and patronizing of us to oh my, do something for you. Yeah. It is like, man, it is so weird the extent to which people have learned how to justify like deeply conservative things with mm. this kind of rhetoric. It's making me mad. But also people are very confused. I mean, they really like, you know, one of the things that, that I sort of realized there was, we had, a, we had a labor action in Hollywood a couple of years ago where the writers all basically, we, we essentially fired our agents until they had signed a new agreement. And there was a period there where TV shows were being staffed, and normally uh, that's the responsibility of agents to get, especially for younger, newer writers, it's how they get started. And they were not getting the benefit of that. And it would have been very easy for all the TV shows to just be like, well, we're just going to hire, you know, like I would, like if I had a TV show or David, I'd be like, I'll call Dave. I can't call an agent and find new people. And this campaign started on Twitter organically. And it was, if you're in the Writer Guild, and don't be an asshole, like if you're just some chump, but if you're, if you're in the Writers Guild and you are of some stature in the industry, to some degree, you've done enough to be able to, and you know some writers who are starting out who are great. Tweet their name with this hashtag, and you know we'll do it. And people started taking meetings off that. It took the place of of agents doing it. And what happened is all the shows got staffed. And the great thing is they have all these diversity quotas that they're trying to meet. And for the first year, I believe I don't want to get this wrong. I may have no problem. I think for the first year, all those quotas were exceeded. Just by people randomly pointing out good writers that they knew, as opposed to trying to fit some kind of pattern that they didn't, they don't understand the reason for to some extent. You know what I mean? And and that was really interesting to see because you have all these people sort of following rules they don't understand. Like I, I don't know why we're supposed to do this, but let's do this. And and the diversity thing is hilarious because we had uh, one black uh, woman writer on our show who said the civil war wasn't about slavery we had uh, a latino guy who said uh latinos are not oppressed in america wow and you're just like well there's diversity yeah yeah 
And Kate, what about you? Because I know that you're on the East Coast, obviously, but you're in the comedy scene. How is that? Do you ever feel like your leftist politics has been an obstacle, like not being a Hillary supporter or a Warren fan? Yeah, I definitely think so. I think for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's weird because it's like, I actually think that a lot of comedians are pretty left, like if not, you know, into it, like, you know, on a daily basis, like there's, uh, there's a ton of comedians that voted for Bernie Sanders. But once you get into that, like, you know, higher tier of income, that's where you start seeing like, wonder why? Yeah, you know, I mean, like, you start seeing like a lot of people who are more they're all like centrist, but, you know, maybe like Elizabeth Warren type of politics. But, you know, I think the main thing is, is like, there's just such a huge reward for having very mainstream liberal politics in your art. Like people fucking love that shit. Like if you make something about how like Trump is a dumbass, people are going to, you know, I mean, it's like some of the stuff that I've had go viral or the things that really you know, ended up like getting my work to like a larger audience. It always was something that like a lot of people agree with, like abortion should be legal, you know, or like, you know, something about like me too or whatever. It's like, you know, I think that as much as like leftist stuff is kind of more broadly popular, the people who are into leftist politics in general just don't have any power, which is not a coincidence, you know? So, the only thing I want to add on to that is, is that, a lot of that resistance, though, was only up to a point, you know, there was no, because if you were trying to do something that actually might, I don't know, early on, it, it drove me insane how at the very beginning of Trump's administration, he was still involved in a fiduciary relationship with NBC. The Apprentice, the sitting president is getting a producing credit on a TV show on a network. And, and I was like, oh, look, here's a simple way that those of us, because everyone in this business hates Trump. There are all these emergency meetings of like all these people, like they fill an entire you know, soundstage with people who want to do something. And I went around to a bunch of folks. I mean, I'm not, I'm not one of these, but I have access to a lot of very big name people in the business who have big TV shows and movies, what have you. And I was like, hey, let's just take out an ad in Variety and go, you know, we, the undersigned, will not do business with NBC so long as you're in a illegal, I mean, because it is actually a legal relationship with the president of the United States. And I got a few people who are willing to sign on. I can't tell you how many people are like, well, I'm going to keep my powder dry for something important, which four years later, they still haven't done anything. Or better yet, big, big name people who are very loud in the resistance, but, you know, who had really complicated deals at NBC that they didn't want to put in jeopardy. And so it's like, they'll go out and go, Trump stinks, but I'm not actually, oh, and I could actually do something that could actually have an impact. And maybe I'll just sit here and tweet about how much I hate Trump. Yeah, I think, you know, it's, I always wonder like what you can say or not. And I think you can say a lot of things, but I think it comes down to like with stand-up comedy, for example, like there will never, ever, ever be a union. Never. Because there's just an endless supply of scabs like, no. and nobody yeah. will do anything to jeopardize their career. And it's like, you know, I mean, like, even if the demands were quite reasonable, like we deserve to have our transportation covered mm -hmm. to come to the club. So we at least do not lose money to perform. There's been a couple attempts to unionize, but it won't happen. But, you know, I don't know, because it's like, I still think that the stuff that you're always going to see on TV, like will be sort of like more mainstream liberal politics. But I also think that there's enough anti-capitalist sentiment that you're starting to see like that kind of Mark Fisher thing where, you know, you like, you see like anti-capitalist art and it's sort of being used as a way for people to like have this catharsis where like, yeah, nothing's really going to happen, but like 
you know, Squid Game was so popular. The Boots Riley movie was so popular. And I wouldn't be surprised if you start seeing like more and more art with explicitly leftist themes as a way of like, you know, just letting people feel like we're doing something yeah. while not actually yeah. doing it. I mean, don't get me wrong. I hope to get paid to make that art. So I think, you know, that's propaganda. And I think propaganda is useful. I would say, yeah, I would say making uh, films and TV shows, you know, it, it, people don't realize what they're watching, but they, it starts to soak in a little bit, you know, for the liberals. To an extent. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I mean, there's, I'm not sure it's. Is it how yet? Triangle of Sadness movie that won can this year is a you know it's a very crowd pleasing entertainment. I think it's coming out shortly. It's from the guy who did The Square and Force Majeure. And it's terrific. And it's really fun and it's really entertaining. Woody Harrelson's in it, and it's it's explicitly socialist comedy, and I think it's going to do pretty well. And then of course you know Parasite, which was you know masterful. Which I remember reading like hearing a podcast that came from like Lincoln Center, and they're like you know. I think there may be a subtext about class yeah. in there. Like, yeah. Oh, really? You think? Wow! You must have you must have a PhD in liter in literature because who else could could have found that? There are so many. Yeah, Neil Brennan, who is this? Like, I mean, I I think he's a really really funny comedian. He used to write for the Spell Show for a long time, but you know, he's like a very wealthy person. You know, he tweeted like. I don't understand who is the parasite. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it wasn't parody? He wasn't being a parody? No. He was wow. like, oh, God, I thought that was the joke. Oh, my God. Oh, my so God. Sorry. That's so yeah. embarrassing. Yeah. It's still funny. I just yeah. should have laughed yeah. differently. Yeah, in yeah. a different way. Yeah. Well, I was going to – I want to ask you guys about what happened in L.A. Oh, my God. That leaked audio that's really offensive. But before that, someone asked, Kate, if you know Ariel Elias. I do know her. She's really sweet. Yeah. I thought, let's – Brad, can we show this clip? This is a clip that's been going viral. It's a comedian named Ariel Elias who is performing at a comedy club. A shithole. And a shithole called Uncle Vinny's. I think this clip kind of speaks for itself. What's your question? Did you vote for Donald Trump? Did I vote for Donald Trump? What do you think? No. Okay. Here's a question for you. Why would you ask me that in here knowing I'm the only Jew in this room? Are you trying to get me killed? <laughs> if it makes you feel any better, I vote in New York. My vote doesn't matter there. It doesn't, it doesn't matter here either. It doesn't matter. Guys, guys everybody vote for whoever you want to vote. I don't I don't care who you voted for. I'm just happy we're all here together. So you voted for Biden. Huh. I don't know. Why does it matter? Yeah, so what? What does it matter? I can just tell by your jokes you voted for Biden. Why are we talking about right. I can tell by the fact that you're still talking when nobody wants you to that you voted for Trump. <laughs> So in case you guys missed that, 
She was being heckled, asked if she voted for Trump, if she voted for Biden, then made a very funny joke. How she said that she could tell that this person, by the way, that they wouldn't shut up and were talking when no one wanted them to, that that they were a Trump voter. And then someone throws a beer at her, which she then, in a very badass move, picks up and chugs. Yeah, she she that was the perfect response. Amazing yeah. response. I like the guy it's, in the video who yells, I'm never hanging out with this group of people again. I know. I know. <laughs> I'm never oh coming God, out with this group of people. wrong with these people? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the thing, that, honestly, the thing that stands out the most to me is how good of a line she had about the it, She's a fucking great comedian. Like, I, I don't even, I've never seen her before. And just from that one line, I'm like, she's a very good comedian. Yes. She's very, she's very talented, can handle an audience. Trump people, they have been put into a fever pitch they want violence. They, they cannot tolerate anybody who, who voted for Biden. Neither can we, but in a different way. Yeah, I know. I mean, right. We, you know what I mean? Who are enthusiastic Biden voters. Yeah. And it's just like, I mean, it, it's just like, this feels like, okay, this is the beginning. This is just, this is just going to start happening more and more because if you go listen to right wing media and, you know, Mar- Marjorie, Marjorie uh, Taylor Green, uh, they're calling for violence constantly, and so just because this comedian voted for Biden, like you can throw a beer at her, like it's, it's insane. Yeah, she did handle that really well. Have you guys ever dealt with really terrible hecklers, Dave or Kate or you, Josh? When I don't know in, in the pot in the screenwriting I, I take room. Take notes from studios. That's yeah. so much worse. Yeah, I have. I've had. Um, I had to hit a guy with the mic stand who rushed the stage. What happened? I don't remember what happened. Um, it was pretty innocuous, just like crowd work. And and all of a sudden he was running at the stage. Like I just made a crack and I had to like, I literally had to pick up the mic stand and, and hit him <laughs> in the chest. Oh my God. Uh, I also, I mean, I even got it. I, I even had a guy come at me at Largo once, which is like a oh you know, fancy little LA place. So yeah, I've, I've had it. It's this was uh, Jersey Shore, by the way, I for, forgot to say, in case you couldn't, couldn't tell already, that was Jersey Shore where that woman was performing. But I think it's, I think it's, um, I, I, you know, it's like, it's like society as everything gets more and more heated. I think, I think comedians are very vulnerable, uh, people. I've always been worried about a shooting in a comedy club, but yeah, I think we're super vulnerable up there. Was your joke political or he just didn't like the punchline? You just didn't land the, didn't land No, it, it wasn't even, it was, yeah, no, it was just like, he, he, like, I think he heckled me and I, and I slapped him down, you know, and, oh, yeah. but they get really mad when you slap them down and the crowd laughs, then they get really enraged because now they're all alone, you know? Kate, you have any stories about hitting people's mic stands or anything? <laughs> Either in with or without a bit involved? Maybe you just do that on your Most own Most of time. the time that hecklers heckle, it's like not that bad. Like it's usually yeah. just someone who won't stop talking like to their person at their table or they'll just keep, like a lot of times it's people who think they have positive intentions. Like I recently was like, I guess heckled by this woman in Austin that like literally everything I said, she could be like, I relate. Oh my God, that happened to me. That's really funny. The, oh my mom God. did that. And I'm just like, okay, this is literally people don't want to hear this, right. but it's like, very validating. Who, yeah. It's like people who <laughs> think that they're making the show better. And oftentimes people who are very drunk, you know, yeah. I think that like alcohol is a big factor because all these clubs have like a two drink minimum and people just drink a lot anyway. But, you know, whenever there's a heckler, it's oftentimes somebody was fucking wasted. Usually. Yeah. yeah. Right. 
Speaking of heckling or saying things off the cuff that you don't necessarily intend to have people hear. Sorry, I don't know what the transition is. Oh, wow. What tell a us about, I know. Did you hear this one? It really killed. No, tell <laughs> us about what just happened in L.A. County, please. Well, let me, uh, let me set it up by saying yes. in the building, the city council um, has all their offices and meets, and there are above it like um, these walkways. And it's been pretty well known for years that mayors will send people up there to listen to what the city council is saying in in the back rooms so they have knowledge ahead of time of what's going on uh, and apparently are uh, real they're really awful awful people but besides the racism thing they're really just terrible um apparently they forgot that that was a thing and so someone was up there and recorded them uh, in their offices talking and boy was it racist yeah uh called called uh so mike bonin who is uh, uh one of our more left councilmen he's actually leaving but uh he he adopted a black son and the 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 president of the city council started talking about how he was misbehaving on a float at a parade and called him a little monkey and said he's being raised like a white kid and if if it was her she would take him and you know beat the crap out of him um went on to say uh, an astounding amount of things like the district attorney is, is with uh, the blacks yeah Fuck him. With he's the with the blacks. blacks yeah with the blacks yeah um it's just a it's just a, a barrage. Uh, every single time I go in and read something else, you're like, oh, this is also horrible. Like they just the, and and it's very obvious that this is just how they talk. It's not like someone caught them at, at, a, at a very juicy moment in time. This is who they are. This is how they talk. Yeah, none of the other people on the tape are going, oh, geez, Nuri, I've never heard you. you know? Yeah, yeah. It's not like, whoa, what? What are you talking? You know, like they're obviously not shocked by it. There's anti-Semitism. There's homophobia. Oh, there's, there is like, anti-Semitism. All... That makes me feel seen. Yeah, I, I don't know that. Yeah. Yeah, say Nuri went on this whole tirade about how Israel is an apartheid government. So oh, was, nice. We were just like, that's outrageous. <laughs> how dare she? She's my uh, yeah. Works for me. No, um, what I, I I heard that she said some homophobic stuff. I haven't heard it. I did hear this terrible stuff she said about Mike Bond and Son, and then I heard the stuff she said about. She talked about like Oaxacans and like Korean Oaxaca. I mean, just like racist stuff about how people look like indigenous people. Oh, no, was, God. Yeah, there was yeah. an article that just came out a couple of days ago that was quoting her talking about her neighborhood in very anti Semitic terms. Um, how like in the, it used to be represented by the Katzes of the world, the Burmans of the world. She said how she never actually saw them in the community. And I mean, it's just, she's awful. They're all, and the, the thing that, and I think it's getting heard almost as much happily is that, you know, you get through that barrage of just rage inducing racism and you get to the fact that they're sitting there like, now let's do some corruption. And they're openly colluding to carve up districts of progressive uh, representatives who are their enemies, um, including my own rep. I can't remember. She, yours, Dave, Nithya Raman in the fourth district who we yeah. all worked for early on. It was great. And um, uh, one, a, amazing election against a terrible uh, sort of centrist incumbent and has been doing a lot of work for the homeless. And they were literally just trying to, they're openly talking about how they're going to carve up her district. Uh-huh. Which is like getting a little bit lost because people are understandably upset by what she said about various groups of people and about a little boy. But it is true that there's like redistricting and carving up districts and corruption 
and openly acknowledging it's for political purpose. Yeah, you know? and that uh, these people hold power. I mean, like, they, it's not just like they're your fucked up, you know, uncle. racist uncle or something. Like, they are going to do things that impact the people that they hate, you know? Yeah. And these are establishment Democrats. They are not, you know, this is, this. They're, they're, there's no conflict here if you're some kind of leftist. These are these are centrist Democrats being just absolutely as awful yeah, as you Yeah, you can feel good are. hating them. Feel good about it. I mean, it. the bad news is, even though, like, first, what did she, she was called on to resign. She didn't, she stepped down from being the president. And now she's taking some time off until it dies down. Sorry to uh, hey, talk to her family hey, or whatever. Hey, time off. Oh, nice. But how is that a fucking thing you can do? It's, you can just go like, okay, I'm going to not do this for a little while and make money. Yeah, they'll come what, back. What the fuck yeah, is that's that? still brave. But the, 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 the sad thing is, while she's gone, um, her replacement is a guy that they, in fact, on the tapes refer to as her guy, oh. uh, Mitch O'Farrell, who's um, almost a cartoon villain. Whose opponent is is running right now is a great um, Hugo Soto Martinez. He's running in in uh, his district in the thirteenth. Who's fantastic, but yeah, now Mitch O'Farrell, who's this monster, he's in charge. He's like the new president pro tem. Oh, great! So we all win. Mitch O'Farrell, we had a you know during COVID, the essentially they created a, in a park in uh, Echo Park. They the Dunhouse took it over and they had showers and they had they they set up a little city for themselves and it was functioning wonderfully, but the Neighbors didn't like it. So Mitch O'Farrell spent $2 million having the police come in and remove them. Oh, right. Yeah. $2 million. What an astounding waste of money. Like, think about what you could have done for those people. It's incredible how bad these these politicians are. We actually have a clip, right, of Michael Bonin, who is the man whose son was being attacked. Let's just play a little bit of that because... Uh... It's important, I think, to hear his perspective on this as the non-racist L.A. representative. Good morning, everybody. Thank you. Uh, I, I, I really, really do not want to be here today. I, I, want, I want to be home with my family right now. Uh, I, I am, but, but, but I, I want to say a few words. Um, I am still trying to wrap my head around everything that was said and everything that is happening. Uh, my husband and I are both uh, raw and angry and heartbroken and sick for our family and for Los Angeles. Um, and as an Angelino, like most Angelinos, uh, I, am, I am reeling from the revelations of what these people said. Trusted servants who voiced hate and bile. Public officials are supposed to call us to our highest selves. And these people stabbed us and shot us and, and cut the spirit of Los Angeles. It, 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 it gave a beat down to the heart and the soul of this city. But before anything else in the world, I'm a dad. And I'm, and I'm a, fuck. Uh, I, I am a dad who, I'm a, I'm a dad who loves his son in ways that words cannot capture. 
And I take a lot of hits, and in hell, I know I practically invite a bunch of them. But my son, man, that makes my soul bleed, and it makes my temper burn. And I know I'm not alone, because Los Angeles has spoken, and it feels the same way. When, uh, when, when the LA Times called me on Saturday, I was out of town, and I was away from my family. And um, the reporter summarized some of what was on the tapes. And my first instinct as a, as a father uh, was to implore them, don't run the story or at least be vague. Please say, made racist remarks about my son. But I didn't want to see the specifics in print. I didn't want him to have to hear them or, or read them someday. And I also knew that the tapes contained much more learned even more in the past couple of days, much more than the comments about my son. And as the, uh, as, as the, the white father of a black child, you, you stumble and you, and, you, and, you, and you fuck up and you're, you, you try to do your, your best to be a parent and an ally. And I get it wrong a lot, I get it right sometimes. I, I knew that I did not want this story about virulent anti-black racism to be centered on an angry white dad. Uh, and you know, I was afraid this was gonna be a California section. It's been an international news. You know, th th these words, they cut uh, and, 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 and they stung. Um, you know, I know that I can never really know or comprehend or feel the, the weight of the, 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 the daily relentless racism, anti-black racism that my son is gonna face. But man, I know the fire that you feel when someone tries to destroy black boy joy. Man, uh, it's a rage. And you know, my husband and I were both raised at a time when, as gay men, we didn't think that we would be married or that we would be allowed to have kids or that we'd be allowed to have a family uh, because our relationships and our families were considered illegitimate. And a lot of what on these tapes stung. Um, but over the past two days, I've heard about a lot more than, 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 than me and my family. I've heard about attacks on the Oaxacanio community. Uh, I've heard the homophobic tropes. Uh, I've heard anti-Semitic remarks. Uh, I've heard uh, uh, in, in, incredible coordinated efforts to disenfranchise blacks and renters and to weaken the, the voice of, of progressives and, and to undermine anyone who tries to do coalition building. And it, it's overwhelming and uh, I, I am outraged and, and I'm, I'm sickened by it. Yeah. Okay, is that a good point to stop at? Yeah. yeah. Right, yeah. So that, that's really crazy. It's so heartbreaking. I just feel so awful that such horrible people are allowed to say such horrible things that still have power.
That's amazing. Let's again not to but you know the White House a little before this just called for them all to resign, which yeah. was yeah. I think it's just they obviously should brutally awful. Or they should just be fired. Said. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I don't even know how that works. But yeah, I should. think the state legislature has to do that and they're not in session. Um I think it's really important to note because this is white supremacy that they're espousing here and and that thing where attacking a, a young black boy, two what was he two or three? Two because he's have because he's having fun. Yeah, I mean that's essentially what we're talking about. This little this this little kid is jumping around having a blast because he's in a fucking parade on a right. float on a float like that is like a kid's dream and he's bopping around and that's what makes her mad is the fact that that's what she's seeing. It's it's that he's a black kid. Right. That's that's all this shit is, and yeah, I mean the whole thing. He brought up the I don't know how to say a lot. Oaxaca, calling them all ugly. That's what yeah. she did. She said I'm they're chaos. all ugly yeah. people. She is so she is such the the rich person. It doesn't matter what fucking country they're in, Venezuela, Mexico, America, where they're just shitting on the indigenous people. Yeah, she's that old school bullshit kind of fucking person, and. It must be so hard to be a, a white dad and have a little a little black kid because you've already got a weird sort of disconnect that you you can never truly understand what they're going through and it's hard to protect them and then you fucking see this shit like it's I'm surprised that he is this composed and able to give a speech from a point of vulnerability as opposed to what I would do. So hats off to this guy because that was an amazing speech. The fact that they have not fucking left office is astounding. What was so infuriating to us after it happened, because it's just, God damn it. Some things are just like, sorry, it's over. It's done. You know, all your men are dead. You need to, you have an opportunity to stand up and do right. And Karen Bass, who's running for mayor, who's just kind of, you know, look, obviously oh. you got to support her over Rick Caruso, who's just awful. But Rick Caruso is like a Trump supporter, horrible. Yeah, you know, who's guy. just like, no, I'm a Democrat and now I support good things and I'm going to buy everything and kill the homeless. And, um, but, you know, Karen Bass's response was like, well, uh, they should be held accountable. Now, these are, you know, Nuri Martinez was a major uh, supporter of hers, a very powerful figure. And, and her response is like, oh, they should be held accountable. You're like, by what? By who? By you. Yes. Hold them accountable. We should go. And by you. And there was a brief moment and I saw a couple of things and thankfully they weren't representative, but there was enough of it. There was a couple uh, sort of black establishment politicians who were outraged at people calling out Karen Bass for her response because why are you holding a black woman responsible for anti-blackness? I was like, because it's one of her supporters who's an incredibly powerful person in government. Yeah, because she's running for mayor. It's not like yeah, she's you're running a for random lady. Yeah. And then I saw a couple of other people who were like, well, it's all, it's misogynistic. They're all focusing on Nuri Martinez, who's the president. And you're like, yeah, because she's the most powerful person in the room. Who's the one who made the majority of the awful comments? And everybody is calling for all of them to resign. Yeah. But right. it's yeah. horrifying, like Democratic. When you find me someone who's politics, defending right? all the other people in that room and singling her out, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's just God, you can't. Although she's this far stuff. and away the worst. I mean she's, of course she's yeah, and, and she's in power. I mean, I I personally think 
that not just those, not just those people need to go, but the people who didn't say they need to resign need to yeah. be driven out of office. Yeah. This isn't, this is black and white. This is, yeah. these people are terrible. They need to go. They are talking, they are using racist anti-black language while discussing redistricting. That is like fucking 1930s racism shit. Yeah, yeah. it is. And to me, like one thing that was striking is like, you know, the, the fact that nobody was really shocked in the recording yeah. at all. Like to me, yeah, that yeah. suggests that people are actually talking like this pretty frequently. Like not just these. This isn't like a one-off. Yeah, but I mean, it's like you know, I don't hang out with people who say stuff like that, and I'm sure that you don't either. But there's got to be a lot of people who do, because otherwise, at least one person would be weirded out. I think. Yes. Yes. Yeah. What was shameful is the first, the first response that I read that that came close to sort of expressing, um, I thought, a point of view that was lucid and rational in this, and just saying that there's no place for this in there. No, was Caruso? I mean, all these Democrats kind of scrambling to figure out like how oh, little. Yeah, I'd that get was away funny. With. Yeah, I saw Marguerite. Uh, Margaret Kimberly tweeted that, like, why is the Republican response yeah. better than the Democrat one? I, I saw somebody accuse him of, you know, white supremacy because he's calling it. It's like, shut up. I mean, and yes, of course, 100% believe it's just a cynical response from him. Sure. But it's the fucking boilerplate response that everybody should have given, and it's a shame. It's not really that much of a struggle. You yeah. can write this in your sleep. Yes. It, this shouldn't it's just- require, like— a lot of soul searching. Exactly. And it is that thing. It really is. It's not like they're in a gray area where you're like, what's the minimum I can do to hold on to these allies who are still going to be in power? It's so far over the line. You're like, oh, they're dead. And I can either go with them and blow my career up, or I can just say what ought to be said here. There's no right. consequence to me for doing that. And they still went down. It's a terrible indictment of the Democratic Party that these people can't just come out and throw them under the bus because they, they just it's like it doesn't matter what they do you know the yellow the yellow republicans for doing this all the time this is this isn't any different than the guy who who was like trying to date a 13 year old or whatever the fuck it is it's heinous this is what this is heinous and the fact that they just can't come out and just go yeah no you're gone is such an indictment of who they are as a party yeah well guys this has been excellent but any final words anything you want to make sure that we mention whether it's a podcast or other projects you're working on? I mean, you can listen to the audit every Monday on it's good. It's good. It's a great opening. Are. Great opening, guys. I have one thing I'd like to mention, if that's okay. Um, so remember when Chessa Boudin got recalled by uh, a bunch of horrible right-wing billionaires dumping a bunch of money into a very successful ad campaign, but basically like, you know, the, the right wing. He was the DA in San Francisco, by the way, the, the reform minded DA and who you've seen on the Katie Halper show. Yeah. And he was, you know, his parents were, had both been incarcerated. The weather underground. Yeah. And he was doing things like uh, prosecuting police and, you know, he was prosecuting people who were terrorizing abortion clinics and not allowing police officers to take DNA tests gathered from rape kits to be used against victims. Yes, exactly. So basically, you know, the police union and these right-wing billionaires and the real estate industry really 
threw down to get Chessa out of office because they wanted someone in office that would, uh, you know, keep conducting these like homeless sweeps and just have a very like carceral approach to, to dealing with the problem of so many unhoused people in San Francisco. And they recalled Chessa, the mayor installed this person named Brooke Jenkins, who is kind of doing like this, you know, new war on drugs type approach, very, very anti-homeless. She's horrible. And so progressives in San Francisco are trying to get her out by electing another reform DA, John Hamasaki. And he's actually supported both by progressives and also by pretty mainstream Democrats because Brooke Jenkins is so, so bad. So I'm going to be doing a fundraiser on October 30th, and that's going to be at the rickshaw stop. And there's going to be a bunch of other comedians performing there. And hopefully we can raise a lot of money for his campaign. So, you know, if you are going to be in the San Francisco area, you live there, Oakland, on October 30th, I'm really, really hoping you can come out. If you can't come out, but you have a few bucks to spare. It would be awesome if you just made a donation to the campaign or bought a ticket anyway, or promoted it on your social media feed. Um, We're really, really trying to make some money for this campaign because man, we got to get this Brooke Jenkins lady out of office. Yeah. She also lied about her involvement in the campaign. She's atrocious and got busted. We have a clip of that, that we can link to. And Dave and John, anything you want to plug? Mention the audit. I have a podcast podcast called The Audit. Audit. Uh, We talk about how how great the Bushes are and um, other people like that. Uh, You know, I have my podcast. uh, The really good one that I do is called The Dollop. (laughs) And that's a history podcast. And uh, we'll be expanding that. We're going to have a a second version of The Dollop coming out in November. That's amazing. It's going to be like world history or European history? No, uh, it's, it's kind of the same, but different. It's I just pick a all the newspapers from like the 1700s on or online. So I just pick a newspaper and read through it to Gareth and a guest. That's really and it's great. like, it's really crazy. <laughs> that sounds really fun and funny. Wow. Yeah. All right. And also I'm a big shout out. I uh, really a big fan of Bronzeville. Oh yeah. Thank you. You have been a great supporter of that. Can I take 30 seconds or? Yeah, of course. Bronzeville is an audio drama, like old time radio. It's like a TV show without visuals. Um, and it's Lawrence Fishburne and Lorenz Tate and, and Omari Hardwick and Tika Sumter and just like you can't LeVar Burton, you cannot believe the cast. It's a, a about the, the numbers racket in Chicago in the 40s. There's two full seasons of it. They're available. It's an audio drama. It's like a podcast. It's called Bronzeville. And I wrote every single solitary episode of them. And I am so goddamn proud of them. And my favorite moment was when one of our actors, a very big name, leaned over and said, um, if, if you were a black writer, you couldn't get away with this because you would be forever pilloried as an angry black man. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, you're an, so you're an angry white ally. That's right. Yes. Uh, uh, but anyway, I'm really proud of it. Katie's been a big supporter of that from, from the get-go. And it's, yeah, um, it's, it's, it's fun. Don't get me wrong. It's shooting and screwing and it's really fun, yeah. punches. It's great. And it's great. Drama. Yeah. But yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Katie. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. 
Our show is produced by me, Katie Halper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.